0: Welcome to episode two of Fault Tolerant. Today, Eric Showers and I talk about the Moloch DAO and Ethereum clients. Hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. We're going to start this episode with Moloch DAO. Eric and I were just looking for the origins of the name. Apparently, it's a... The God of Child Sacrifice, is that what you found? Yeah, <laughs> or yeah, associated yeah. with Child Sacrifice, not the yeah. God of... Yeah, yeah, there's multiple, I think. Yeah, so the name comes from, I think it's inspired by Meditations on Moloch, this post by Scott Alexander. This DAO has been under development. It's launching at, uh, at Denver, uh, February 15th to 17th is when that's taking place. So launching pretty soon. So I'll explain how it works and what it does, but the kind of the first thing to say is the motivation behind it is, it's attempting to solve the tragedy of the commons that that happens in lots of different areas. But in crypto, like the Ethereum protocol, core protocol development, there's a relatively small amount of money allocated to people working on that stuff. You've got all these projects building things on top of Ethereum. And some of them are extremely well-funded and they all need the core Ethereum protocol to be working and to be robust, but nobody really wants to pay for that, that core protocol development. For example, there's Prismatic Labs. A lot of people will have seen this on Twitter. There was a discussion with them talking about what their biggest bottlenecks are and they're building a, a, an Ethereum 2.0 client. Mm -hmm. They said their biggest bottleneck is funding the people who were working for them were mostly still working at their day jobs. In that thread, uh, Vitalik donated a thousand ether to them, which was nice, but we clearly need a better way to fund that kind of core protocol development. Yeah. That's
1: a, that's an interesting quote that I've seen passed around a lot. I mean, one of the developers from Prismatic himself says, our biggest distraction is that we're still working full-time for other jobs. And yeah, these people
0: are, these people are taking a lot of time out of their lives to work on this mm-hmm. engineering. So the this Moloch DAO was devised to help address this. And what it is, I'll do like an example here in a second, but it's a DAO that holds a, bi- a bunch of money. So these can be, the pot of money can be Ether um, as well as ERC-20 tokens. But essentially it has a big pot of money and you've got a bunch of members of the DAO the members have voting tokens or voting shares and all they can do is they can vote to accept new members into the DAO or they can take their voting shares and trade them one, one for one for loot tokens which allow them to take money out of the pot in proportion to how many loot tokens they have. So. Yeah, I've been thinking about this because we talked about it over lunch and I've thinking,
1: been thinking about it since then. And it's definitely um, become a lot more clear to me what's going on in this scheme. Okay. Um, originally, when I was reading about it, I thought they were proposing a scheme just for fundraising in general. Like, like this was a, uh, a dap in a way for mm-hmm. fundraising. But um, yeah, now I understand that they're just talking specifically about the problem of funding uh, protocol development for Ethereum. Um right. I'm starting to understand it a lot more now. Mm-hmm. Cuz it's yeah, it's not designed around like game theory economics in the way that some dapps have to have to target um because from the beginning it's designed around the idea that there are parties that would like to donate um in order to fund protocol development.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I'll give an example, I think it makes it pretty clear. And actually credit to uh Matteo Leibowitz for He wrote a really good post on this on the block, and uh, I'm pretty much stealing his example here, but he won't mind. You can imagine you had a, the DAO has a $50,000 pot of money, and that can be Ether plus ERC 20 tokens or whatever. Imagine there's five members and each member has 10 voting shares. So there's a total of 50 voting shares. For each voting share, there's one loot token, but you don't have access to your loot tokens until you until you burn your your voting shares. So you've just got these, these 50 voting shares and then these like locked up essentially loot tokens that are held by the DAO. Let's suppose a new applicant appears and new applicants can either be pledging to put in some money into the pot. Someone could show up and say, I have $10,000 in some token and I'd like to join the DAO. And for my $10,000, I'd like to have say 10 shares Mm -hmm. or an applicant can pledge to do work. Some applicant comes and they're going to build an Ethereum 2.0 client and they say, I think this work would be worth 25 grand. So here's my pledge. I'd like to join you guys and I would like to have, when I'm accepted, I'd like to have half of the voting tokens because our pot is 50 grand. And if they had half of the tokens, they would be able to trade those in for the loot tokens and take $25,000 out of the pot. So they think their work, their work that they're going to do, that they're pledging to do is worth that much. So they're saying, I'd like, I'd like this many tokens. Since we have the, right now we have 50 tokens, they'd be requesting 50 tokens themselves. That way they're, when they join, there'd be a hundred total and they'd have 50, so they'd have half of them. Mm-hmm. Let's say they're accepted. The 50 tokens are issued. Now, our tokens, the, ex- the existing members, they don't lose tokens. It's just new ones are issued, and it dilutes our share. Like, initially, there was 50 tokens. We each had 10, so we each had 20% of the pot. So we each had $10,000. Mm-hmm. And then when we issue... 50 more tokens. We now have, we each have 10% of the tokens because there's 100, and we each have five grand. So we've all been diluted by half. Mm -hmm. And that's how this new member has access to the 25 grand. The new applicant can either stay in the DAO Mm -hmm. and use their tokens to vote, or they can trade them in right away. And get their fifty loot tokens, and then take out their twenty five grand, or they can just trade in some of them, mm-hmm. and so on.
1: Yeah, I think um, I think this is interesting. Now this become a little bit more clear to me because I don't think it has like lucrative value to it as a project or as a scheme, but I think that it has uh, has a lot of value that could add just in a project management sense of organizing. Um, two things that I see is. The fact that um, these entities would organize and have a pot already formed, I think makes it a little bit easier for people to apply for the grants because the the process of applying for the grants right now is probably a little bit weird because you have to just look at all the entities that have a lot of ether or that might have a stake in it and consider which ones would be most likely to give you money and then apply to them all individually, I guess. Um, yeah this would make it easier because um, especially since this DAO could very easily put out RFPs like requests for proposals and I think that that can go a long way um, towards organizing innovation putting like very explicit proposals of what uh, the DAO is looking for what they're willing to give
0: money for I guess it it provides it provides a way for a bunch of entities to come together pool their money and then collectively decide on how to allocate it in mm-hmm. a sense although they they don't directly decide how to allocate it they don't decide i mean they they look at app- applicants mm-hmm. and they either approve or dis disprove them right i imagine um i imagine that the intention is that the organization
1: would still uh discuss ahead of time like of what sort of specific projects they're looking for but yeah that that makes sense to me, um, just to simplify the voting process.
0: It probably helps to leave it up to a yes or no decision. Mm-hmm. So an existing member has to put a deposit down for, they, assen- they essentially have to vouch for some applicant and put down the, a deposit. And there's a seven-day waiting period where existing members vote on whether to accept this new applicant. Mm-hmm and they need a 50%. I don't think it's actually a majority. I think it's literally 50% is all you need to accept a new member. Seven day waiting period. And whether the applicant is accepted or not, the $5,000 deposit is returned at the end of that. Right. And there's a maximum of one new proposal per day. So at most you would have one proposal per day and each of them has seven days from the time they're proposed. So you have the staggered thing right? where you're always, if you got one every day, you'd always be voting each day mm-hmm. on, uh, on an applicant. Right. Yeah, this is interesting. So if we're part of this DAO mm-hmm. and an applicant, you know, shows up and I think their project is terrible and everyone else thinks it's great. Let's say a majority of people vote. Yes. I believe that's transparent. I believe you can see the votes as they come in,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I could then rage quit. I would cash in my voting shares and leave. And I would get my loot tokens and I could then cash those in. Hmm. Yeah. So then it's interesting because people who voted yes for that particular applicant, if some of us start leaving, mm-hmm. then uh, supposing it, it goes through, mm-hmm. but let's say like a quarter of the people leave. hmm that applicant is still going to receive the same number of voting shares that they requested, even though now there's less total voting shares. So the, the members who are still there are being diluted f- even more hmm. than they would have been if the other people hadn't left. So in voting yes, you should be really confident. Right. Right. Because not only are you, you're definitely going to be diluted, obviously, if someone's accepted, assuming they're not bringing money with them. But if you vote yes and then some people leave, you'll be diluted even more.
1: I see here that you wrote that um, members who vote yes must remain. I don't really understand that that uh, mechanic that's uh, like enforcing that they remain. Like how it's actually implemented? Yeah, well, because right below, I see that members can trade their voting tokens
0: for loot tokens at any time. Mm. Is that? Is there an asterisk on that? Yeah, yeah. So it's, let's say we just have one applicant and it's like day three of the waiting period. If you have voted yes already and you see, like you voted yes on the first day and now you see some people voting no and you're thinking, oh man, I don't want to get diluted that much. <laughs> right. Uh, you still have to remain.
1: Right. So during the um, the voting period for a proposal that yeah. you voted yes on, you cannot yes. leave. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. These, um, these kind of like, I like to call them schemes. Uh, <laughs> they're interesting because uh, like, I feel like this is all kind of knowledge and experience that comes from well before blockchain. like it's just uh, it's just like rules and um, like uh, constitutions in a way that uh, to, to
0: oversee these kind of these more complex organizations. A lot of this stuff has been figured out in a sense. like the game theory has obviously been studied for a long time and a lot of these kinds of things have been figured out with corporations and other legal structures and things like that Mm -hmm. but with crypto we have new ways of building these kind of coordinate coordination systems
1: yeah i mean that's that's what i've brought up with you before that um this feels these kind of uh, schemes feel a lot like incorporation to me sometimes Mm. and yeah i think that uh i think that over the past century there's been a lot of innovation just with like the organization
0: of these kind of capital pots but what's different is that previously you had to build all of these coordination structures out of paper and pen Mm -hmm. and law all of those things are really slow and they're also i mean they can be pretty granular but Mm -hmm. When you can define these things in code, I think it becomes significantly more clear.: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because when you put it in a smart contract, it's not you don't
1: have to worry about like, are we talking about a corporation in the USA? Mm-hmm. Is it a corporation in Germany, or is it in South Africa? Like all of a sudden, when you put it in uh, solidity in a smart contract, it's like, well, if you put this smart contract on a proper Ethereum blockchain, these rules will be enforced mm-hmm. right there's no um there's no sense of that and and as well i i kind of like the principle that it's designed for an ambiguous sense of like organizations and entities um and there's no real specification of like like who these people are what their relationship is to each other and there's not really a, a lot to be said about what those relationships need to be i i just think that's cool because um it shows that you can, uh, you can form organizations like this, like the DAO. And as long as you have some like minimal sense of social organization, such as like, oh, we're going to hold a meeting next week or next month. These, uh, these like asymmetric organizations will still be able to function quite, quite well
0: mm-hmm. without leaders even. Another thing I found interesting about this was the simplicity of it. There's only three smart contracts. And like, I just browse through them and they're all pretty short. Hmm. I just find it cool that you can implement something like this with a pretty small amount of code. So Mateo listed some of the potential problems with a structure like this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So if some members that have, let's say there's a few members that have more than 50% of the voting shares, mm-hmm. they could, you could imagine they might submit a proposal that would give them more voting shares but if this happens the other members can simply rage quit and there's no downside right so what i
1: read from that is that in order to protect themselves from uh, the collusion of the other members all members must check in once a week basically to make sure that they don't let any proposals get by them otherwise they're at risk of collusion
0: yeah another point was there is no economic incentive to join. So I was trying to think if there's some way you could imagine your money appreciating by being in this, in a fund like this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's it's meant for fundraising. So it's not necessarily a money making vehicle. I see this being useful for entities that
1: hold so much in crypto uh, cryptocurrency right now that they <laughs> they're not like they can't sell. Mm -hmm. And they also understand that protocol development is like one of the best ways for them to secure the value of those assets by continuing to fund innovation. So
0: together, they can probably convince each other to spend a little bit more. Another issue is if you have some entity that contributes, like, let's say a thousand of their tokens and the token has really low trade volume, then... You don't want to just price those tokens on their market price necessarily, because if there's not a lot of liquidity and you say, okay, the market price of this token is $1, they're contributing a thousand tokens. So that's a thousand dollars. But if there's not the liquidity there, then the thousand tokens might not really be worth a thousand dollars. So then an applicant could join, say, here's my thousand tokens. It's worth a thousand dollars. You let them in they then immediately sell their or burn their voting shares and take the equivalent of market value of the tokens they put in. They Mm -hmm. take that out of the pot, but now they have Ether and other tokens that are more liquid. Right. In my head,
1: I wouldn't see um, this being very useful with like a wide variety
0: of tokens, (laughs) Mm -hmm. just because the overhead doesn't seem worth it. And on the converse to that, if you had some token that was some applicant put in their tokens and we undervalued them when they joined, then members of the DAO could leave and get a share of these underpriced tokens.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When I was reading about this Moloch DAO, I I was reminded of the DAICO idea that Vitalik put forward. Are you familiar with this one, Eric? No, I don't think so. So this was a modification to the ICO model. Oh, no, no.
1: Yeah, I have read about this. Mm.
0: (laughs) You know, with a regular ICO, you have a token sale and you sell a bunch of tokens and the company issuing the tokens raises a bunch of money, like a lump sum bunch of Ether. The problem with doing that is the company doesn't necessarily have a good incentive to deliver on whatever they uh, plan to build. Mm -hmm. And they get all the money at once, which can be... You know, problematic. Yes, right. <laughs> <They're> suddenly, <laughs> everyone's millionaires, and uh-huh. they burn through it super fast. So, Vitalik proposed a an alternative model that he called the a, ICO like DAO plus ICO, where, you would have, the token sale, but the money would be held in a smart contract, mm-hmm. and the token holders would vote on a tap, and the tap is like a stream that goes to the company or the project. Mm -hmm. So we'd all buy tokens and then we would vote that this project should get access to whatever it is, a hundred thousand dollars a month. They can withdraw that money and work on the project. And then if a year later we see that they haven't delivered anything, we can use our tokens to vote to refund the remaining money hmm and then then we would just trade in our tokens and burn them for a, like a pro rata share of the remaining money
1: mm-hmm.
0: which I think is a really clearly an improvement over the ICO model
1: yeah I mean that's uh that was kind of what I felt about the big ICO phase in 2017 um, was it was really wild Westy feeling mm-hmm. in the way that yeah like people, people were buying tokens as if they were like funding projects like they were their own little venture capitalists you know with a couple couple hundred couple thousand dollars but um but yeah there's no legal framework to refund them when no. when those projects aren't delivered upon uh, mm-hmm. it's not like uh yeah it's not like you're buying a security yeah or, or stock or anything um but there's yeah i mean obviously there's ways to improve the uh the system like and improve the ico process um, there's rules and there's there's like different voting schemes you can use to make it a little bit better. And I think there's a lot there's a lot of uh, ground to cover, a lot
0: mm-hmm. of work that could be done to improve this. Yeah. So the idea that occurred to me was maybe you could combine the Moloch DAO and the DAICO. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if this actually makes sense, but like an ICO is a different thing from like a grant proposal. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's not the the right pairing, but you could imagine. A new applicant enters the DAO and we agree that they should be allowed in. So we give them all their voting shares, but the available loot that they could redeem starts at zero, let's say. Mm -hmm. And it takes maybe a year to vest, Mm -hmm. right? So after a month, they could take and let's say they got 100 voting shares. After a month, they could maybe burn 10 of them. And get a portion of their their endowment. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they wait another month and they burn a little more. And then if we, if we all decide that they're not on track to deliver, we could vote to kick them out. <laughs> and we could burn the rest of their loot. Or burn the rest of their loot tokens. Mm-hmm. So then we would have only paid them, say, 30% of that initial chunk that we were going to give them. Rather than with the current Moloch DAO, you give them the full 100 voting shares, and then they can just burn those right away and take money and hopefully deliver their project. Uh, we'll definitely be watching for mid-February when it launches. I'm really interested to see whether the big names get involved with it, like the whether the Ethereum Foundation and Consensus and if those guys join, that'll be really interesting to see. Mm-hmm. So do you want to talk about Ethereum clients? Sure. Yeah, that's what I was
1: uh, interested in sharing this week, just because this is a topic that uh, that I work with on a technical level. And I feel like it's something that uh, people don't hear about too much and they might be interested. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to talk about Ethereum clients specifically. Uh, I think that the topic of nodes and clients for other blockchains is pretty interesting, um, but they... They're quite different. When you go from one protocol to another, they change a lot. Uh, that's something actually, a little anecdote, uh, something that Dino experienced recently. I kind of got a chuckle out of this, but uh, Arthur just started mining um, Grin, which you talked about two weeks ago. Arthur's our coworker yes. and Dino's our boss. Yes, thank you for the context. <laughs> <laughs> Arthur started talking about Grin because he's been mining it. And Dino wanted a payout from the miner to see if it was working, but the payout like expired or something because it's peer-to-peer. Is that right? Like grin has to, I think when you send the transaction, the receiver has to be online as well and talking to the sender in order to do the signature properly hmm. in in like one of the transaction schemes. Anyways, that, that I found interesting just because... Uh, <laughs> that's a good example of how nodes are different on certain protocols.
0: Yeah. And maybe we should just describe, I mean, most people listening will, will know, but an Ethereum client is basically a piece of software that is aiming to implement the Ethereum protocol.
1: Yeah. There's, there's a pretty wide range of topics like in, included in what an Ethereum client is, but um, I would describe it as like it's a peer-to-peer software system. So uh, it's, a, it's a piece of software that's designed to go out and find other Ethereum clients running the same software and then talk to them and ask stuff about what they have, like what, what they see as the, the state of the blockchain or the, the truth. And then it'll form a web of all the, uh, all the other clients out there that it can connect to and they'll all just talk amongst each, each other. So the idea is that you have enough clients running, you form a web across the, the whole world. So the clients, as I said, they cover a lot of things because there's just a lot of processes involved in that. I mean, there's the blockchain itself and the logic that governs like transactions and how they're executed and how they're, how they're like signed, how they cover identity and all that. But there's also a lot of uh, specification and rules about how nodes communicate within each other, like within their networks. Um, so there's rules about uh, discovery protocols, like how one node introduces itself to another node um, and how they transfer data packets. And it's interesting because those are, those are things that aren't talked about much. Like when we talk about clients and protocols for blockchain, uh, everyone focuses a lot on the hot topics, which is like... Consensus algorithms, privacy, that sort of stuff, but there's a lot of these other protocols just kind of jam packed in that are very different from blockchain blockchain. So as I was talking about, node discovery protocol, that's an interesting one I find, because uh, some networks l- like to limit that if possible. Like they'll have an idea of how many connections a node should have to keep the uh, the network healthy, and. Uh, One of the things I find most interesting about those smaller like side protocols is that uh, sometimes they'll have rules that are possible to break. Like you can't, you can't enforce that. Nobody breaks the rules, but they still try to hold to them. And what they'll do is that uh, a, a node running in a network will actually keep a list of all the other nodes it knows. And when a node starts breaking rules, it'll jot that down and consider it just like a bad peer. Um, and it will rely upon it less and less. So those, I don't know, I think that's pretty interesting because that has like some some implications for the way these networks
0: run, but it's not talked about nearly as much as consensus. Mm-hmm. Different clients, they can interact with each other, right? Um, so as far as the the Ethereum network is concerned, it doesn't really care if people are running Geth or Parity or whatever. Mm-hmm. The system should function just fine regardless of what clients are being run. And if there's a big switch and people stop using geth and they all use parity, as far as the network's concerned, it should just be fine. It shouldn't Mm -hmm. matter. Yeah, they're all speaking the same language. What did you want to talk about? Did you want to talk about the node types?
1: Yeah, sure. I'll go through that first. I think that's a good place to start. So I kind of uh, rambled about some of the things clients do, Uh, but now we'll get to the important stuff which is how they like store their copy of the blockchain and, and what parts of the history they keep and what parts they throw away. There's essentially like three, three types of nodes that I'll classify them as right now for Ethereum. We can start with the full node. And the full node, what it does when you start it up is it, it goes out and it tries to find a bunch of other peers uh, and then it starts asking them for blocks this is a pretty familiar process for most people. But uh, once it gets these blocks from its peers, it'll, it'll start calculating them to make sure that they're okay and they're following all the rules. And it'll keep doing this until it gets all the way up to the, to the uh, top of the blockchain. But an important part about this is that once it like calculates a transaction, so if it's at like block number 10, it'll calculate a transaction and figure out who has how much money at that point and like what the smart contracts are and what their data storage is, but when it moves on to the next block, because it's still like a couple million behind the network, it's just going to throw away that data that it just calculated. It's not going to hold on to it because it doesn't need it. It verified that it was okay and that it didn't break any rules,
0: and now it can go on to verify the next block. But doesn't it need the state? If you're on if you're on block ten mm-hmm. and you generate, you have this world state. Mm-hmm. The block block eleven could have like a single transaction that just changes the state of one account, right? Mm-hmm. So then, won't wouldn't I need the entire state from block ten? Right. right, you got me. Uh, okay, <laughs> can't
1: throw it out right away. Okay, it keeps I see, I see. it keeps the current state and then it calculates the next block. Mm-hmm. But once it's done calculating that, it can throw away the the older states. Yeah, so that's uh, that's right there. I'm sure you can see that's how we we can lead to situations where people are confused about how big an Ethereum node is mm-hmm. because uh, there's stuff being thrown away. Um, and this is normal. Like, as far as I understand, all blockchain clients will prune the data that they don't need. And the data that's being thrown away is not necessary for security in any, in any sense.
0: So maybe we should talk about the a different version of, of, a, of a full node, which is an archive node. Mm-hmm. Because... So the full node will generate the world state and... Apply a block with a bunch of transactions,
1: mm-hmm.
0: change the world state, and keep doing that. Throw away the old data, throw away the old world states that it doesn't need, mm-hmm. and arrive at some current world state.
1: Mm-hmm. Archive node, we're going, we're going. Like in my mind, I have like a straight line. We're going to the left, so the
0: more bloated. But um, an archive node will generate the world state and then keep a copy of the world state, like a snapshot. Yeah, right, of that each, block. For each block.
1: Yeah, so it's it's not giving any like additional sense of security for the network in that sense, but it can be useful for a lot of people. Uh, I use this with my company because we uh, very often will need to ask questions in code such as like what was the balance of this account at this block? So if we weren't storing the state at every block, that's like to get the answer to that, we'd have to recalculate all the way up to that block to get the state again. So we run an archive node um, because for us, it doesn't make sense to throw away that data since we're going to, need to access it fairly often. Yeah. So that's, that's an important thing to, to realize uh, the archive nodes are quite big. They're getting close to two terabytes or ours is, but they, they're pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah.
0: Like that gives you a lot of power. Yeah. Um, but it, it's purely like a you don't need it a full node can run with like it's like 200 gigabytes or 180 i think yeah it's i still, think it's lower than that it's still under 200 gigabytes yeah. yeah i think it's near 160 or 170 yeah but a full node is all you need you don't actually need archive nodes they're just mm-hmm. useful to be able to query those like oh what's the world state at block six million what's the world state at block one million
1: yeah exactly um so in my visualization in my head again the types of nodes <laughs> so the archive node is, is furthest to the left it's very bloated that's the biggest um, right next to it's the full node and the full node does like the classic blockchain we're going to validate from zero to now um, That that's pretty cool but there's a faster sync version for ethereum called the, the fast sync uh, and it, it cuts corners because it doesn't actually compute the transactions from block zero to the current time and the way that it maintains a sense of security without doing that, I think it's pretty interesting. What it does instead is it, it still downloads all the blocks. So it has all the data that it would need if it wanted to do all that computation. But computation takes time. So rather than executing all the transactions, it just takes the, all the blocks and um, verifies the block headers. So it makes sure that the proof of work mining that went into it is true. Uh, and that's important because that's where the actual network security is coming from, right? Mm-hmm. Is making sure we're on like the true historical chain comes from the proof-of-work mining. So it verifies those calculations. And since each block header has a state root value, state root is kind of like you take the entire world state and you reduce it to one hash. Um, since it has that, once it gets up to the, uh, the up-to-date part of the, uh, the blockchain, it can just start asking for chunks of the state from people uh, from nodes and it'll just start downloading it and it'll start filling in the whole world state. So it'll ask another node like, Hey, do you have any data for this account? Like I saw it show up in transaction earlier mm-hmm. and the other node will, will send it down the, uh, down the network. Um, it'll start getting out the contract code and the contract storage. And then once it's assembled the world state as it should be at that that current position, it can verify it against the state root variable. Um, And then from there, it knows that it's up to date and it can proceed as normal as a full node would. Now, there is some security thrown away there, of course, but I think that uh, because it's verifying the proof of work, that's all that's really important. You don't actually need to know what
0: happened in those blocks Mm -hmm. in order to know you're on the historical chain. Right. You're basically trusting... I'm trusting that the rest of the network checked these transactions mm-hmm. and that the world state that I'm eventually arriving at is legitimate. Like no you're not checking in the middle whether someone created some money out of thin air. Exactly. You're, you're not you're not checking for that, but like at this
1: point in the in the game, that's a pretty safe assumption for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. And I think an important dis- distinction to make is that once you are running like once you are up up to uh, up to date with your fast sync, then you are confirming the transactions. Right. So although full nodes are important for like verifying that from zero up until now, nothing funny happened. As far as I understand, even if the entire network was running on fast sync, like it could still operate healthily. It doesn't right. it doesn't like absolutely require full nodes all the time, as far as I understand. Mm-hmm. Because the the fast syncs have a full copy of the current state. They have every piece of information that they need to verify whether uh, a modification to the current state, which is the only type of modification you can do. You can't modify past states or future states. Um, They have all the information they need to verify that a modification
0: to the current state is valid or not. Mm -hmm. So there's full nodes, archive nodes. Going with your method, (laughs) your left to right, there's archive nodes, full nodes. And then light nodes. Well, Fast Sync is kind of a little aside in
1: the middle there. But yeah, the last okay. one's called light nodes. Okay. And light nodes are interesting. I don't know too much about them because they are a little bit more complicated. There's a little bit more cryptography involved. But um, I have used them before, and they're incredible. Like, for reference, we synchronized a, a fast node here in the office, um, and it took about three days. It But last time I synchronized a light node, it took about 10 minutes. Hmm. wow very very fast wow
0: yeah i think they are they downloading the block headers only
1: yes i'm not i'm not sure if they download all the block headers though because that's that can take up some space i'm not sure i this is a topic that like could use like its own little segment i think (laughs) because light nodes have quite a few interesting schemes involved with them now light nodes uh you could not run a network off light nodes that's right. a good distinction to make. Um, that's one of the differences with them. They do rely on the other nodes, and they rely upon the other nodes actually talking to them as well. There's uh, there's different variables you can set when you run a node to to set how many light clients are allowed to connect to you. Oh, I see. So if I see. everybody turned that to zero, then light nodes wouldn't work. But I guess we have some charitable node operators that allow yeah. the uh, network to function properly. Light nodes will do things the important things that they do is they'll get like transaction hashes and they can verify whether that was included in the, uh, in the chain. So that can be really important for like validating whether or not your transaction that you sent was actually um, completed properly. Mm -hmm. And they can also validate the balance, I think of other accounts. So somebody sends you a transaction and you don't have access to the full state to see if it's a valid transaction but you still want to like okay it
0: and give them their cup of coffee that they're paying for. All right, cool. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about with, uh, well, maybe we'll mention really quick. I just saw this on, uh, I think on Twitter and the, the ETH hub podcast mm-hmm. that uh, Eric Conner does. There's the eight clients right now developing Ethereum 2.0 or there's eight companies developing Ethereum 2.0 clients, hmm. which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, that's a lot of clients, though. Like, there's not even that many clients on on the current like Ethereum 1.0. Yeah. So, I don't expect all of these clients to uh, to make it to the end. Mm-hmm. I would hope
0: that two of them do. Yeah, at least <laughs> if we have more than one, then we're doing pretty good, I guess. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of interesting too that uh, this is an area where the something like the Moloch DAO is. Uh, potentially useful mm-hmm. is funding some of these um, efforts
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, did you have anything else do you want me to talk a little bit about the, um, the
1: languages used sure yeah yeah so I'm going to just look at the uh, Ethereum 1.0 so the current clients that are working there's five big ones that I see there's geth uh, and geth is like the the original the og client it's mostly funded by the ethereum foundation and it's a direct descendant of the c plus plus ethereum uh, project which was the first client that i know of um so geth is made in go um and Go goes a, uh, a language that's fairly well optimized for like multi-threading um so it can handle a lot of uh, processes consecutively sorry not consecutively yeah like in parallel yes in parallel yeah so that's Geth. Uh, that's the one that I work with. I don't think I've worked with any other clients yet. The next one is Parity. Parity is made by the company Parity, and it's written in Rust. Uh, Parity is the uh, one that's been around the longest, other than Geth, uh, and it's. I think it's quite good. Like it's quite fast. Parity's kind of gotten some flack for issues that they had with their wallet. Right, they the. They multi-state. lost a lot of people' money. Mm-hmm, yeah, that was yeah, that was yeah. sad. But um, the client has been fairly, fairly well stable. I think there was one issue in the past with Parity accidentally forked off of Geth, but they, uh, <laughs> they haven't had any issues since then. Hmm. So other than that, um, I see from the Ethereum blog, there's the Harmony client, the Pantheon client, and the Trinity client. I know those bottom two. The Trinity client is written in uh, Python, and my understanding of that project is that it's not aiming to be a production system necessarily like it's not meant to be performance it's it's written in python of course mm-hmm. it's more so meant to help people just understand the uh, how the specification turns into an implementation because Python's so easy to read it's a really good place where the developers point people when they're trying to uh, get get started with uh, engineering on ethereum pantheon is developed by consensus i think and it is a, uh, a java client I think that's pretty interesting too because java is a language that that i learned in my first year at university and professors told us that this language was probably not going to die and we all thought it was going to die but mm-hmm. you know a handful of years later i'm pretty sure it's not going to die yeah i guess not <laughs> eh? it's still around yeah so the idea behind uh building a client with java is just that um java is fairly well designed for like production systems and handling memory and memory is something that the geth client is really bad at i know mm. so i think that pantheon could uh could help the ecosystem a lot by just um providing like a more stable client for the kind of stuff that like my company does right where we have one or two nodes running on servers and we're just going to leave them there and we need them to work like as best as possible but we really don't want to touch them
0: yeah yeah <laughs> Okay, thank you everyone for listening. Please rate and subscribe. Reviews really help. We're super small at this point, so every review helps. If you have a topic idea or you want to be on the show, please email us at faulttolerant@membrane.net. Follow us on Instagram at Membran Group. You can follow me on Twitter, JordanMMCK. Uh, Eric does not have Twitter. Check out our sibling podcast. It's called Off Key. It's a music podcast hosted by my coworker, Linsa. These two podcasts are produced by Membran Entertainment Canada, aka Membran Labs. Uh, We're a music services company that provides distribution services for the export of Canadian music. And we're building some really cool stuff using blockchain tech to help people in the music industry, specifically music rights owners, helping them to get paid. I'm working on that. And if you're in Victoria and looking to record a podcast of your own. We rent out our studio. Check out MembranLabs.com for more info. That's it. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks.